The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Good evening, everyone. So tonight is February 14th. I always forget to say that, the date. And I'm doing a series of talks on the Four Noble Truths. Um, as some of you know, I'm following some of the teachings in this book, The Mind and the Way by Ajahn Sumedho. And if anybody would like to have more support for your practice, you could purchase that book if you'd like. You don't need to. And it's a nice survey of practice, both formal meditation practice, but just how to live using our life to develop wakefulness or mindfulness. So the second chapter is about the Four Noble Truths, and I've already spoken a couple weeks on this chapter, and maybe one or two more weeks, too. And tonight I'm going to talk again about the second Noble Truth. So to just get us up to speed, uh, this is a passage from Sylvia Burstate, a well-known author and meditation teacher. teaches mostly at Spirit Rock Meditation Center north of San Francisco. And in her book, It's Easier Than You Think, <coughs> um, she has this nice definition of the Four Noble Truths. The First Noble Truth declares unflinchingly, straight out, that pain is inherent in life, inherent in life itself, just because everything is changing. The Second Noble Truth explains that suffering is what happens when we struggle with whatever our life experience is rather than accepting and opening to our experience with wise and compassionate response. From this point of view, there is a big difference between pain and suffering. Pain is inevitable. Lives come with pain. Suffering is not inevitable. If suffering is what happens when we struggle with our experience, because of our inability to accept it, then suffering is an, option, is an optional extra. I misunderstand this. I misunderstood this when I started my practice and believed if I meditated hard enough, I would be finished with all pain. That turned out to be a big mistake. I was disappointed when I discovered the error and felt and embarrassed that I had been so naive. It's obvious we are, go we are not going to finish with pain in this lifetime. The Buddha said, everything dear to us causes pain. Those of us who have chosen relational life have made the choice that pain is worth it. So we have this mind and body, and we relate to things. Because of this mind and body, we're constantly relating things. We're relating to our body. We're relating to our ideas. We're we are relating to each other all the time. And everything that we relate to is changing. And that's why there's this inevitable pain. Because as we relate to things, of course, we're going to want the good stuff to stay around, and we're going to want the bad stuff, the unpleasant stuff, to go away. And it won't always be that way. The good stuff won't always stay around, and the bad stuff won't always go away. So that's the inevitable pain in life. And the question is, what do we do with that ordinary, unavoidable loss or pain? 
And that's really speaking to the second noble truth. So just as a reminder, the Four Noble Truths are meant to be a practice, not just a set of philosophical teachings. And in each of these sets of practices, each Noble Truth is itself a practice. There are three insights the Buddha describes that people have when they do the practice correctly. So the first Noble Truth is the truth of suffering, that there is this experience of dissatisfaction or suffering feeling burdened in life. And to the degree that we investigate that, we have three insights. First, we see there is suffering. And this is the first recognition, not about the story of our suffering, but the actual direct experience of suffering. And right with that, if we don't get distracted, we can have the insight this suffering is relevant. It should be understood. And then the third insight in that first noble truth is this suffering, this stress, or dissatisfaction has been understood. And that means in that moment when we can actually say this, uh, this suffering has been understood, it means we're not at all confused by our story about the suffering. So, for example, if we've had a breakup or having a conflict with somebody, and uh, maybe in some moment of the day we recognize there is suffering. So that's a recognition right here in this moment, in this heart. There is suffering. And it should be understood, meaning it should be understood as something happening here, not in terms of my story about what somebody said or what somebody did. And so when we can say this suffering has been understood, it means that at least in that moment, the story that's related to that experience of suffering or stress or loss or pain isn't diluting the mind at all. It isn't uh, confusing the mind at all. So the mind is really seeing or feeling the suffering not distracted by the thoughts about the suffering. So it's it's a uh, this is not this is not something that's going to arise all the time. A lot of times we think I understand the suffering, but if you watch, if you look, you'll see that the way you think you understand the suffering is that you have a story that for you in that moment effectively effectively describes why you're suffering. So the understanding is in term, terms of some conceptual, intellectual understanding of the suffering, as opposed to a visceral or a direct, intuitive feeling of loss, of pain, of sadness, of anger, or whatever it is that's there. So if we can meet dukkha, pain, in that way, then it sets up the second noble truth. Then we begin to practice with the second noble truth. And the three insights that I mentioned last week in the second noble truth is there's a cause. So the next, that next insight, once we understand the pain as this present moment happening, we understand it isn't a static thing. The suffering isn't a static thing. It's an activity. And because it's an activity, it's conditional. It has causes and conditions that are supporting that activity. And if those causes and conditions aren't there, 
that activity isn't there. So what is the supporting, what are the supporting causes for that activity of suffering, of distress, of dissatisfaction? So first we recognize there is a cause, meaning it's conditional. Like we're actually seeing how it is in a moment that suffering arises, and then again, and then again. And so we get it's conditional, so it must have a cause. This cause should be abandoned. So it's just a deepening of insight or of seeing or, or sensitivity. This cause should be abandoned. And then the last insight and the second noble truth is this cause has been abandoned. And last week I talked that the usual way it's translated, the uh, Pali word is tana, sometimes more literally translated as thirsting. But usually we use the word grasping or attachment to desire is the cause. And this attaching isn't a one-time event, but it's an ongoing activity. This is the activity we see. So there's some disturbance. Maybe it's just the memory. And it's an unpleasant memory. And so there's an attachment to the, the desire to get rid of the memory or to get even with the person who's involved in the memory or to get what we want, whatever. But there's some attachment or identification with that, uh, with the desire, with the craving, with the thirsting. So it's more than just the, the desire. There's an identification, meaning that our way of relating to the desire is diluted. And this is mostly what I want to talk about tonight. We can ask ourselves, um, does gratification of desire provide a resting place for us? I mean, we can reflect. We've had a lot of desires in our life, all kinds of desires in our life, and at least some of them, maybe a lot of them, have been gratifying. I mean, even really basic things like being hungry and wanting to eat, and then a little bit later we actually get to eat, or wanting to get old, and now we're old, you know? <laughs> like that movie with Tom Hanks, Big, I don't know if you remember that, it was a while ago, you know, somebody who wanted to be big, and then he got to be big, and then he didn't want to be big anymore. <laughs> So we've had a lot of desires, you know, wanting an intimate partner, for example. And some of us have intimate partners. And uh, so many times we've wanted gratification. And part of this attachment to desire is this belief that if, I get, if this desire gets gratified, something substantial is going to happen, something permanent is going to happen. Like, I'll really be happy. If we don't... Although we might think of this if we reflected, we say, well, it won't last forever. But part of the desire, the attachment to desire, rather, is this feeling like this will make a big difference. I need this. This will be make a big difference in my life. It will have some lasting impact if I can only get this or get away from this. But if we just look back, we see, well, We've had that thought a lot, and we've actually taken care of some of this stuff. And still, basically, we still want things and don't want other things. That the gratification doesn't provide a resting place. And that's really the hook, is we're looking for a resting place, and we think that the gratification of craving 
will lead to a resting place. So there's just not the desire, but we put something on the desire. It's like we expect the desire to really take care of us, or the gratification of the desire to really take care of us. The Buddha said, the desire for a resting place is burning. So, in the second noble truth, we're recognizing, you know, having come uh, to the experience of suffering and really open to it. And then we see that it's an activity. And we see the activity has something to do with attachment to, to, to the desire. And then we begin to become more clear or sensitive about how that can manifest. So the basic experience, as one meditation teacher said, it's like experiencing the squeeze on the heart. We feel some kind of contraction in the mind and heart, or some weight or burden in the mind and heart. And that particular experience of suffering has can have three flavors, or the craving can refer to three different things. It can refer to some sense experience, some sense pleasure or delight. You know, craving being in your warm bed, watching your favorite TV show, or craving having a hot bath or shower or a good meal, or craving a sexual experience. So we all know that craving, and then when we get attached to it, there's a certain burning quality to it. I mean, it's one thing you know, to walk past a restaurant you like and to just feel that desire, oh, it would be really nice to go in and get a bowl of noodles or something like that, and then go about your way. But it's another thing for that desire to come up and for the mind to latch onto it. Oh, you know, something like, I really deserve this, or I should eat because I don't know when I'll be able to eat, or I haven't been there in weeks. Maybe they're going to close down. I should go. So the mind gets attached to the desire that this is good. And I, and then there's that added part. The attachment is, I need this. I'm happy if I get this. There's nothing wrong with walking by something and recognizing that that would be a pleasant experience. It would just be a pleasant experience. Or it would be just a pleasant experience. And, and not get trapped or cooked by that thought. So that's desire. And attachment to desire is when we create a story that revolves around the sense of, of course, me, or some self-centeredness to the story. And then it gets really sticky. So that's desire attachment when there's desire for sense experience. Now, we can also desire some future experience for ourselves. So this is the second category of desiring. Like uh, in Buddhism, we usually call this becoming, wanting to become something, you know, want, wanting to become a good meditator. Maybe we get exhausted always wanting things, you know, a new car, a good meal, a new partner, new clothes, warm weather. And so... You know, we want to be done with it all, so we want to become a good meditator so we can be free of all our sense desires. 
Well, that's just another kind of desire, wanting to be free, wanting to be a good meditator, wanting to have a quiet mind. So we imagine ourselves as some other being. You know, we have this power of imagination, and we think about ourselves in a perfect situation or a somewhat perfect situation with the perfect partner, the perfect job, the perfect body, the perfect future. And we want to become that. And if we get attached, now, of course, we're going to have ideas, like, you know, I have ideas about what the new building's going to look like when we finish renovating it. And when that idea comes to my mind, if I grab a hold of it and have a strong sense that I'll be happy if it turns out that way, and I'll be unhappy if it doesn't, well, then I suffer because there's attachment. There's nothing wrong with having an idea. In fact, you know, if we're planning the building, I'm going to have ideas of what it's going to look like or what it might look like. And it's just a question of how I relate to those ideas, those pictures, the drawings. So that's called desire for becoming or to become something. And then the opposite of that is the de desire to end. So in a way, instead of imagining what we want to become, the mind's fixated on something that's happening now, and what we imagine is not that. Like, we want to get away from this. We want to annihilate or end this. And so that's, in a sense, it's a different, a different form of becoming. It's really about wanting this to end. And that's the third kind of craving. So being attached to any of those three desires leads to suffering. Now, that's something not to take as gospel, like this is how it is, this is the truth, but to explore in our own lives, is this true? Like, first of all, can we first just recognize desire? Can we recognize ordinary, everyday, almost constant sense desire? Like for the room to be a little warmer now. Or, you know, the cushion to be different than it is or the person not to be in my way so I can see, or, you know, just the little desires. And so many of them are pretty small, and it's nice when they're small, because then we can see that the attachment is also relatively small. And that really helps the contemplation. So we see there is this activity of, let's say, being irritated, like it's too cool in the room for you, and the thought arises, or first the perception, the room is cool, and then thoughts arise connecting to that perception that the room is cool, which is, why don't they turn it up higher? Why do they keep the room so cool? Or maybe you have the opposite experience. It's too hot. And then if the mind obsesses, they're suffering. So with, when we know we're suffering, we can do the first noble truth. There is suffering. It's relevant. Uh, I've understood it. I've really opened to it. And this is how it is. And then we see right here, it's actually not the coolness that's the problem. It's the not liking the coolness is, that's the problem. So that's what we look at right here in the heart. The resistance to the coolness, the not liking of it, that's happening right here. It has nothing to do with the room. I mean, in a sense, it's related to the perception of coolness. But the suffering is right here in this activity in our heart. And we can, if it's not so strong, we can really look at it. We see there is a cause. The cause is that we're attached to the thought 
that it shouldn't be cool or it'd be nicer if it were warmer. We're identified with that thought. It's not just a thought in the mind. It's a thought in the mind and then there's this way of relating to it which is that's me talking to me. I really do want it to be warmer. It really isn't okay that it's cool in this room. And so that's, that's the attachment. It's that aspect of the, the thought, the view, or the um, way of relating. That's the attachment. We see that that's the cause. This cause should be abandoned. This cause ha- has been abandoned. So before I go on to talk about the abandoning, let's just do a a little reflection right now. Maybe you can recognize one of these three desires that's somewhat, you know, coming and going in your mind. You know, the desire for a sense experience, the desire to become something, like, I really want to get this stuff. The desire for something to be over with. Yeah, you know, like, uh, sick and tired of smoking cigarettes and I want to be done with it. I'm sick and tired of being a negative person and I want to be done with it. So, any of those desires, and just see, is desire a problem if there's no attachment or identification with it? So, in just a minute or two, as you, as we all reflect and notice the different desires, just see what happens if a desire arises in the mind and we just let it be what it is. We don't, we practice not attaching. Is it possible to have a desire without identifying with it, without picking it up? even use the desire to move the body or scratch an itch. Any thoughts about that? Is desire a problem if there's no attachment? Or is it possible to have a desire without attachment? Desires are like thoughts. They're very ephemeral. What gives desire punch is our identification. The mind, in a sense, congeals around the thought and it, it constructs a sense of uh, importance to the desire. And then it really does have weight. This is from Ajahn Sumedho's book, where he talks about these three different types of desires. We can see all three kinds of desires in our everyday life. If you are bored, you seek something to eat, or you watch television, 
drink something, or find somebody to talk to. These are all the desire for pleasure through the senses. But after a while, you become bored with sensory pleasure. So maybe you uh, dedicate your life to becoming a famous writer, or a good cook, or an enlightened being. These are all the desire to become. When you're tired of sensory pleasures and becoming someone, you want to just annihilate yourself. Sleeping a lot is a kind of indulgence with the desire to get rid of, the desire for oblivion. But as, a, but as soon as you wake up, you have to start becoming something or seeking some kind of sensory experience again. So you go eat something, smoke something, drink something, watch something, read something, think about something, until you get so worn out with it all that you go and annihilate yourself again. If you have an obsession or fear or anger, you have the desire to get rid of it, don't you? I have a bad temper. I want to get rid of it. Whenever you feel anger, jealousy, fear, and so forth arising in you, you try to annihilate them. That's also the desire to get rid of some mental condition that you don't like. And a little later he says, but all these three kinds of desire have a beginning. They arise and consequently are not permanent, eternal qualities of mind. They are not ultimate reality. So the question then is, uh, we can't, you know, the our instinct, our sort of uh, instinct is to do the quick version of meditation or the quick version of enlightenment, which is to go right to abandoning the cause of suffering. But remember, to do the second, the practices in the second noble truth, we have to do the first noble truth. We have to recognize the suffering is here, it's relevant, and we have to open to it completely so we're not resisting it, we're not making up stories about it, we're simply receiving the experience of whatever that suffering or dissatisfaction or weight is. And then we can work with the second noble truth. There's a cause. It, uh, it can be abandoned. It has been abandoned. And so let's talk about what that letting go is. Because it's, it's tricky, isn't it? I might have some judgment going on in my mind, and I'm attached, you know, caught up in judging. And wanting to let go of it is not the same as letting go of it. It's actually, you know, it's more suffering, isn't it? Wanting to be done with whatever afflictive state we're in the middle of, wanting to be done with it is just suffering. So we have to remember this. This is important because we'll, we'll get confused. Letting go does not mean being, it has nothing to do with being averse to being a suffering being. It's not about, I don't like being a suffering being and I want it to go away. It's not that experience at all. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. He says, well-being is just knowing things as they are without feeling the necessity to pass judgment upon them. So that's a pretty that's a pretty potent statement. You know, and we've heard we hear these phrases like radical acceptance, unconditional acceptance, 
just letting things be. So how do we do that? I'll read a little bit from this is another article by Ajahn Tomato on the Four Noble Truths. So he has a chapter on each one of the Noble Truths. This is the chapter on the Second Noble Truth. So he's talking about letting go here. He says, you have an insight that desire should be let go of, but that insight is not a desire to let go of anything. If you are not very wise and you're not really reflecting in your mind, you tend to follow the, I want to get rid of, I want to let go of all my desires, but this is just another desire. However, you can reflect upon it. You can see the desire to get rid of, the desire to become, or the desire for sense pleasure. By understanding these kinds of desires, you can let them go. So this is the trick, and this is the basic premise of the Buddhist path, the Buddhist teaching, which is uh, it's all about the power of understanding things in alignment with the way they are. So uh, cultivating a clarity of mind so that there's less and less misperception. Misperception coming about because our concepts, our ideas, or our experience is being filtered through our concepts and ideas. So by cultivating mindfulness, there's less distortion, clearer seeing, deeper understanding. And so we're learning, first of all, that it's possible to understand to meet experience more directly, free of the filters. And then that's what we do in the Second Noble Truth. We bring that intuitive or open attention to the experience of suffering. And the only purpose, the only intention, is to understand it, not to get rid of it. And that's key. Because if we're there doing this, the practices in the Second Noble Truth, and we want to get rid of it, even if it's very subtle, like, if I just sit with this, it will go away. It won't go away. Well, it may, that, that particular thing may go away, but another kind of suffering will arise, which is the suffering that arises when we want something to go away. We want to be free of something. So if we really want to be free, we have to become devotees of understanding and nothing else. So this is the radical part of mind, the path of mindfulness or the path of awakening. We're putting all our eggs in the basket of understanding, which is, you see how it's, it's the opposite of self-centeredness. Because understanding isn't that, it isn't even that I want to understand. So it's even free of that orientation. It's just understanding for the sake of understanding. Just like when we cultivate metta or loving kindness, we're cultivating love for the sake of love. There isn't any agenda to the love. Like, I'll love you so you guys love me back. But it's just an unconditional, uh, kind of a, a, uh, a generous upwelling of kind affection in all directions. And it's the same with this intention of understanding. And this is, this is important because this is, in a sense, I think it's fair to say, it's the only way for the mind to be awake and relate to experience that doesn't lead to suffering is we take 
in a sense, we take the stance of understanding. It's not really much of a stance in the sense of, like, I'm understanding. Because even that stance gets in the way of understanding. So we even have to let go of the sense of being the witness or that the understanding is landing here. But initially, there will be that sense. You know, I'm here understanding suffering directly. But even that can be teased out with time, at, at least in moments. I want to read a little bit more from this chapter. But we need not continue to suffer. We are not just hopeless victims of desire. We can allow desire to be the way it is and to begin to let go of it. Desire has power over us and deludes us only as long as we grasp it, believe in it, and react to it. So this is his chapter, a few sentences on more directly about letting go. How do you let go of things? This means you leave them as they are. It does not mean you annihilate them or throw them away. It is more like setting them down and letting them be. Through the practice excuse me, of letting go, we realize that there is uh, we, re- rec- we realize that there is the origin of suffering, which is the attachment to desire. And we realize that we should let go of these three kinds of desire. And we realize that we have let go of these desires. There is no longer any attachment to them. So here's the trick. We recognize that we need to let go, that desire or attachment to desire should be abandoned. But we don't have to do anything about that. All we need to do is recognize that. And see, this is difficult, because we may see, like we see the unwholesomeness of our attachment. You know how when there's a problem with another person, how we can just spin with it. And we can recognize it's it's relatively easy to recognize this is not wholesome. But what happens even when we're able to see that it's unwholesome is we're so convinced we should let go of this. But we but what we need to do is just see that this should be abandoned and not act on that. Just seeing the need for this to be abandoned, just knowing this needs to be abandoned is enough. Anything more is too much. Because what it does is it, it, it imputes a self that has to let go of something. So all we're doing is watching, seeing, this should be abandoned. So basically, we're seeing the unskillfulness moment by moment of whatever we're caught up in. And that's a really yucky place to hang out. We're so desperate to actually want to let go that we're we're going to do something about it, and it always screws it up. So the patience that this requires is that we see very clearly this should be abandoned. In other words, this is unwholesome. Whatever the mind is obsessing on or doing, it's unwholesome. It should be abandoned. But we're just staying there with that recognition, with that clear seeing. This should be abandoned. The abandoning comes from the recognition that this should be abandoned. It's a natural... It, it, this, it isn't Mark who does the abandoning. It's a natural happening when there's a clear recognition this should be abandoned. So this is what our homework is this week. Really look for that moment. So again, 
if you go after the big sufferings in your life, you may not have much success. I mean, you can practice with the big places of suffering, but you might find that you learn more with ordinary, not-so-intense experiences of suffering. Little irritations, little attachments to things being the way you want them. And then just go through the, four, or the six insights we've worked with so far. There is suffering. That means you're locating it right here, like, I'm suffering right here. It's right here in my heart. I can feel the fact that I'm burdened. And then really getting, this is relevant, because it's here, it's relevant. And we practice opening to it, and at some point, when we're not defended, we're really willing to feel what we're feeling. We can say, this, under, this dukkha, this suffering has been understood. And then we see that it's a dynamic, it's a process, it isn't like it happened and it's still happening. But it's being recreated. The experience of suffering is being recreated in every moment. So we start to discern there's a cause. And then, this is what I was just talking about, we can begin to discern this cause should be abandoned. That insight arises in the mind. The insight that this is unskillful and it should be abandoned. It just arises in the mind. It's just like, you know, when I look at Bonnie, I don't have to do anything about the perception. I just know that's Bonnie. And it's the same thing. When we see something as unskillful in the heart, we just know this is skillful or this is unskillful. And the question is, can we train the mind to just stay with the perception of unskillfulness? This is unskillful and it should be abandoned. And just stay there. Stay there. Stay there. Until we can, until we have the insight, this has been abandoned. And then that takes us into the third noble truth, which is the, excuse me, the recognition uh, there is the cessation of suffering, or there is, there is freedom. Right? So as soon as the cause has been abandoned, then if with practice we can recognize the experience of a moment when the heart isn't burdened with attachment. So this is, you know, we've heard, all of us have probably heard hundreds of cliches about this experience, you know, where things are just as they are, you know, or everything's just as it should be. But it's an experience of life, of living, free of suffering, free of stress, free of things needing to be different than they are. It's a pervasive and can be a, a quite transforming experience, even if it just lasts a tenth of a second. There's a recognition of no suffering, no the heart being empty of all agitation or any sense of being burdened or constricted. And so that's there is suffer uh, there is cessation of suffering. This should be realized. This has been realized. So it's it's basically. Instead of that experience of cessation being a glimpse or being somewhat unconscious, it's like being very awake to the experience of freedom, really knowing it with a lot of clarity, the experience of no suffering. And then that leads to the fourth noble truth, which we'll get to, I'll get to in a couple of weeks. So I'll leave it here so that we have some time to share with each other. Um, if you have any thoughts from your own practice you'd like to talk about with the group or any questions about the talk tonight, what comes to mind?
Say okay, your name, please. James. James. I think it's I think it's a real insight that yikes is a real insight. They uh, it's it's useful it's useful to, to get a sense of the enormity of the task at hand. But but we can that can be confusing too because what we may not understand is how potent understanding is at uprooting what seems to be this very pervasive almost that's like all we know. I mean, the mind, it, it, I think you're right, the mind operates uh, in an addictive pattern. And, uh, you know, those of us who aren't addicted to toxic substances or very toxic substances are just addicted to slightly less toxic substances, like our own ideas and views and opinions, you know, which most of us are addicted to. Or we're addicted to other people's views and opinions, you know. But we're addicted to something because it gives us a semblance of ground in our life. It kind of helps us be, uh, helps the ego feel somewhat safe. But it's a deal with the devil because that we're, those things are transitory. So we're constantly shoring it up, patching it up, our addictions, because they're not quite delivering the solid ground that we really want, the security that we really want. And so we're in this tenuous place. And you're right, I think we cycle through it. The, the Buddha used that idea of cycling, and he called it samsara, you know, the cycles of suffering that get repeated over and over again, driven by something wholesome, which is we want to be happy. But because we're misperceiving the cause of ha unhappiness and happiness, we keep looking for happiness in a place that we're not going to get it. And that's what propels the cycles of suffering. So that's why understanding is the way out of just repeating these patterns over and over again. 
or not misperceiving. You know, mindfulness really is defined as not misperceiving the way it is. Right, you're just you're back in that addictive pattern again, aren't you? And that is where I first said to myself, yikes, because there's that gap. There's the if the I guess kind of a leap of faith. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> this needs to be abandoned, and not I'll get to it someday, but it will happen without my having to get all tense about it. Yeah, there is a little bit of a leap of faith there. There's an interesting part. I forget if it's in this book or this uh, other article that I downloaded off the internet. You can get, if you Google Ajahn Sumedho and the Four Noble Truths, Sumedho is S-U-M-E-D-H-O, you'll get this really nice article. Just put his name. He has a lot of things on the web, so you want to put the Four Noble Truths, and then you get the place where you can download this um, good article. It's really a booklet um, on the Four Noble Truths. But anyway, I think it's in that booklet where he talks about his first year as a monk in Thailand in the mid-60s, and he, he, he understood the practice well enough to know it's about letting go, you know, and then he would just try to let go, you know, I should let go, come on, let go, and, and then getting really frustrated, like, well, how do you let go? And, uh, well, you just let go, you know? And, and he said that the point of this particular paragraph, and I think it's really useful, is the reason he was banging his head against the wall is he assumed that letting go was more complicated than it actually is. It's not complicated to let go. Because all we have to do is let go in this moment. It's never bigger than this moment. And letting go in this moment means simply to let this moment be what it is. That's all it is. It's not to be content, con contentious or pushing or pulling or having any expectation or agenda with this moment. It's really that simple. But we don't trust that. That's the thing. We assume that real freedom is going to come from something more dramatic than just letting the moment be. And how could it be here anyway, freedom here? You know, I've got to be better before I'm going to have that kind of religious experience. So we keep putting it off until we think the situation is right. And the point he makes, and uh, it's just been my experience as well, is this is the leap of faith. The leap of faith is believing, having confidence that freedom is possible. See, we don't get this much in the West. It's much more an Asian culture where they emphasize the faith part in Buddhism. We don't emphasize it too much in the West because, first of all, a lot of us got interested in Buddhist practice because we had a lot of faith stuff imposed on us when we were kids. And so we kind of want something that's not so faith-based. But there needs, to, there needs to be enough faith to let, let go, you know, the exact point, James, you were talking about where you see it needs to be let go, but you want to do something about it. And so the faith is, like, these teachings make enough sense. Whoever this guy was, the Buddha, you know, Siddhartha, whoever he was, Intellectually, these teachings make enough sense that maybe I should just check it out. You know, maybe I should really do what he says and see what happens. I mean, I'm not going to get hurt seeing 
this should be abandoned and just leaving it there. You know, just just letting go of doing anything else. Just letting that recognition be what it is. And I find, you know, when I go on retreat more and more now, if I'm not sort of being told what to do and I'm just practicing on my own, this is how I practice. I really practice letting things be, moment by moment. And I'll, I see throughout the day moments of real freedom that arise almost spontaneously when the mind lets go of attachment. And it's just about trusting that letting go of attachment, that it's possible in every moment and it's not complicated. And wanting it to happen isn't it. It's just letting go, just letting this be. But the leap of faith is that somehow this disturbed man right here, you know, that the appropriate thing to do would just let it be. <laughs> right? Because we, we're so convinced we have to, we, the ego, has to do something to be free. And that's how we get into the cycles of samsara. We're searching for a solution from the perspective of self, of self-centered activity. And, uh, and we only find more stress and suffering. Other thoughts that come to mind or questions? Great. Yeah. Um, while you're speaking, you talked about instead of the intention to be rid of something, to have the intention to understand it. And what I got thrown off by is picturing myself having an experience with something, feeling an attachment, feeling burdened, and thinking, and I can see myself doing this, oh, I'm having one of those experiences, so I'll try to understand it now. Yeah. I want to understand it, you know, and what's the difference between wanting to understand it and intending to understand it? See, I, I get confused by that. Mm -hmm. So, But here's this wanting to understand it, and I'm not understanding it, <coughs> suffering. Yeah, it's good. It's a good question. Let's make. I want to make two points here. One is uh, because we can want to understand it in terms of uh, uh, explanation, which is definitely not the way. Um, so, but it is. It is okay to want to understand it directly. It's like this is a wholesome desire that leads to the end of attachment. So. From an ego point of view, we need some kind of desire or we're not even going to do this practice. The question is, is it the kind of desire that leads to things unraveling? So this is the interesting thing about understanding or mindfulness or wakefulness or clarity or clear comprehension you know, all the different ways we talk about the experience of seeing things directly and having the intention, the desire to see that intent, uh, to see things clearly. So this is a wholesome desire. Just like it's a wholesome desire to want to care for ourselves or to want to care for others. Now, it's always easy to slide off of a wholesome desire into an unwholesome desire. So we have to stay awake. It's like that intention, we need to be mindful of that intention to make sure that it remains wholesome, that the desire to understand is wholesome. It's really directed to the here and now, to the actual experience in the here and now, and, this, and the only intention is to understand. 
The desire is just to understand things as they are, to be open or receptive to things as they are. And that desire will be purified because, of course, it will be tainted. It won't be pure. But it will get more and more pure the more we practice. At first, we want to meditate because it's cool to be a meditator, you know, or it's, you know, or we want to be free of our suffering, but we're attached, you know, we're averse to our suffering. We want to, but we, we necessary, uh, we will just through practice purify any uh, any of those kinds of corruptions or self-centeredness uh, in our practice because it just start to stand out as the mind gets more sensitive. We have time for one more question or one more thought. Someone has something they'd like to share? Mm-hmm. Fernando. involves two related features you know some some of the ways that uh, mindfulness or uh, this path of awakening have gotten integrated in the mainstream have to do more with concentration and some more with insight and uh, I think they're both quite useful I mean I don't think the practice can actually be corrupted um, because if we develop sensitivity we'll notice that it's getting corrupted and so the whole point is if whatever, however it's getting integrated into the mainstream, if it's really about the mind becoming more sensitive, then if there's, a, if there's sort of some self-centeredness in that activity, in the way it's being used, we're going to start noticing it. And the thing about self-centeredness is it's always a burden on the heart. It's always a tightness. And so we'll, we'll, it, we'll address it. it. This is the thing about suffering. It wakes us up. It can't be ignored. I mean, we have to work harder and harder to ignore the suffering in our life, the feeling of stress in our life. And so if we're getting more sensitive, it's harder to ignore any stress in our life. Yeah, I mean, it has applications. And everyone should feel free not just to do this practice to, for full and complete enlightenment, but you can also do it to have better relationships and to... You know, to be a better employee and to be a better scholar and to be, you know, a better citizen and to be better at golf. I mean, it's really okay to bring it into all parts of your life because it will support your spiritual endeavor if you bring it into your golf game and bring it into your love life. It, it's not, there really aren't boundaries to awakening. Any moment will do to practice non-clinging. Any moment will do. You know, that practice of letting go, we might as well practice all the time because it makes everything we do better. So we might as well practice all the time. And we leave it there. We can start practicing right now. <laughs> we'll just take a couple breaths together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.